the miracle that we uh, could see God, that we could hold him uh, in hands, that he would come and be born of a virgin as a baby, is the miracle of the incarnation that we celebrate this Christmas. And if you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, I, I want us to, to look at, G, at Jesus's uh, beginning of Jesus's life as Matthew presents it to us, and look at Matthew's genealogy, and kind of look at what he says about Jesus's birth. And if you'll Remember from when we studied the Gospel of Luke several years ago, uh, Matthew's genealogy is a little bit different than Luke's genealogy. Matthew and his genealogy is is focusing on Jesus' right to be the king of the Jews. As we look at Matthew's genealogy, really the whole Gospel of Matthew, he's concerned with us understanding that Jesus has the, the right to be the king of the Jews, both theologically and legally Jesus has the right to be the Messiah. But as you look at Matthew's genealogy and you see him uh, beginning to, to show us that purpose through that genealogy, there's a couple of things that, that stand out to us. One thing you notice that it, normally in a genealogy would be, okay, this person was a father of this person, this person was a father of this person. But instead, in this genealogy, although that, that happens a lot, there's also the mention of, of four women who are part of this genealogy, five if you count Mary. And not only does Matthew mention these women, but another remarkable thing about this genealogy is that the women that he mentions are not all Jewish. In fact, probably none of the four women besides Mary that he mentions are Jewish, which is kind of remarkable in a genealogy that's showing that Jesus has the right to be the king of the Jews. And what's more, these women are also associated with, with scandal, with shame, with sorrow. So I want to read Matthew chapter 1 with you. And if you're able to, if you'd stand in honor, stand in honor of God as we read Matthew chapter 1 together here as we set our hearts upon considering the miracle of the incarnation, the miracle of Emmanuel, of God with us, and, and look at these these women particularly over this week and next in Matthew chapter 1. But I'll read the whole chapter to give us the context. Verse 1 of Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And there's the first mention of a woman there. By Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He's referring there to Bathsheba, the fourth woman mentioned here. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, 
and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Math, and Math and the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask your grace upon us this morning as we talk about these things, as we look at your word, as we think about your son Jesus. May we trust in him and look to him as a perfect provider for all things in our redemption. We pray this in his name. Amen. Some of us this morning here are probably uh, people who really enjoy the the bigness of Christmas and Christmas celebration. Some of us uh, probably, you know, you took down your, your pumpkin, your really scary pumpkin, October 31st, and you began, you know, November 1 was, you know, began setting up the, the Christmas lights and the decorations. You turned on the, the Christmas CDs, and for some of you, you just, you enjoy the, the bigness of Christmas and the celebration, and even today, you are super excited about all the, the things that are going to happen over the next 24, 48 hours for you. Uh, you, you enjoy, you take great joy and delight in the bigness of Christmas. The crash is coming, but we won't talk about that. Uh, that that's in a couple of days, right? That'll be next week's message. We'll talk about that. Some, some of us probably enjoy the, the smallness of Christmas. We enjoy the, the time. That's me. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a, a small Christmas guy. You know, I like the, the smallness of being with family and friends in a living room around a fire. That's, you know, I kind of enjoy the, the smallness of Christmas celebrations. That's where I find joy at Christmas. You know, but there are some of our brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, maybe this is you, who just struggle with Christmas in general. And maybe uh, this Christmas in particular is a difficult Christmas for you. 
Ben, Pastor Ben sent me some articles this week from the Desiring God website, and they're talking about people who are grieving this Christmas or suffering, and what they wish that we knew about them and their grief and how to minister to them. And both of them, both the articles were written by people who had gone through some difficult circumstances and what they wish people would say to them, what they wish people would not say to them. One of them quoted the hymn, O Holy Night, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, a, wor- a weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. I know, I know that some of our, our brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning are aware of the, the weariness of the world in a special way today. They're aware of the weariness of the world, a world affected by the fall. They're aware of that in a special way this Christmas. They're aware of it in a very profound and personal way. And maybe some of you are, this Christmas, you're aware of the, the weariness of the world in, in kind of some small areas. Maybe the, the weariness and the fallenness of the world has taken place in your life, even over this past weekend. I see we have a lot of family members here visiting with us this morning. Uh, we're so glad that you're here. Maybe you guys have had some, some weary world experiences together as you've been enjoying, enjoying time together uh, this, this weekend. Maybe some conflict, maybe some burned meals, maybe some, uh, just some, some, some health issues as, as you talk, maybe just some, some interpersonal things going on. Uh, maybe you're aware of the weariness of the world in, in some, some deeper ways this Christmas. Know there, there are families who are struggling financially in our body. People who are experiencing the reality of living in a fallen world where, where some resources are hard to come to. We know that some people in our, our church body are experiencing the weariness of the world financially this Christmas or, or emotionally. There are some of you who are missing a loved one for the first time uh, at, this, at this Christmas. One who's been with you every other Christmas, but this Christmas a loved one's not there. It's a weary world. It's a world that's affected by sin, by the fallen nature in which we find ourselves, and that comes to the forefront in some very profound ways at Christmas, big and small. Now, these five women, four women plus Mary, that we encounter in Matthew chapter 1, and and in different ways, these women serve as vivid examples of the pain of living in a weary and fallen world. And I want to spend some time this week and, and next week looking at each of these women and seeing the, the ways in which these women suffer in a fallen world and, and how each suffer sorrow through abuse or shame. But through the grace of God, these women contributed to the redemption of the fallen world in which they live by becoming part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ himself. So I want us to look at these, these women. All of them are, are certainly fallen themselves, but we see that they are affected by the fallen world, a weary world that leads through God's grace and redemption to Christmas joy. Here's kind of the main idea that I want us to think through together this week and next. As we think about joy at Christmas, Christmas is not joyful because a beautiful world welcomes her king 
what we're going to see as we look at these, these women and talk about their lives is we're going to realize this, that Christmas is joyful because a king comes to a weary world and proclaims redemption. In other words, Christmas, we don't say this Christmas season is so beautiful because there is this beautiful world and beautiful shepherds and a, and a beautiful manger and this beautiful world. A king came and the world welcomed this king. No, we say no. Christmas is joyful because there's a king who comes and this king comes to a weary world, a world affected by the fall, a world affected by financial difficulties, a world affected the fall causing financial problems, health problems, emotional, spiritual, physical problems. All these things are part of the weary world in which we live. And this is the world that the king comes to and proclaims redemption to. And we're going to see that in the lives of each of the women mentioned in this genealogy. In fact, what we're going to do is this. We're going to talk about each of these women. We're going to see their sorrow. We're going to see the pain that they endured and suffered, experienced. And then we're going to see God's redemption. We're going to see how God provided redemption in their stories and through their stories. And then as we, as we look at how God provides redemption to them in their pain and their suffering, we're going to learn some things about the king, about what each story teaches us about the king who proclaims redemption. Christmas is joyful, and hopefully we will experience joy this Christmas. Not because the world in which we find ourselves is, is beautiful, but Christmas is joyful because a king comes to this weary world in which we live, and he proclaims redemption. So as I said, there's, there's four women plus Mary here, and the first woman we encounter is a woman named Tamar. We encounter her in verse 3. And as we look at Tamar, here's what we're going to see as we think about Jesus. We're going to see that Jesus is king is the provision for the abandoned. Look back in your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis in Genesis 38. And really this morning here on Christmas Eve, we're we're just going to look at Tamar this morning. And then we'll look at the other women uh, next week on New Year's Eve. But here's, here's what we see. Turn to Genesis 38. And as you encounter Tamar in this story in Genesis 38, remember from a year or so ago when we were in the book of Genesis, remember what's happening in Genesis 38. We have the story of the patriarchs. There's Jacob, uh, who's known as Israel, and his 12 sons. And one of his 12 sons is Joseph, and we're kind of in the, the story of Joseph. But in chapter 38, we take a little bit of a detour, and we go and we encounter this story with his son Judah, and this experience that Judah has with this woman named Tamar. Now, as you look at Tamar through chapter 38, it's a, it's a very sad story. In fact, every encounter that Tamar has in this chapter with a man is, is painful. The text says this, it begins this in verse 1, it happens at this time that Judah went down from his brothers, he turns aside, uh, to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira, and Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. So she becomes his wife, and she bears three sons. And the three sons' names are Ur in verse 3, and then a second son, verse 4, Onan, and then a third son in verse 5, and his name is Shilah. Judah is in Chezeb when she bore these, this, this last son. Now, 
Some years go by, and Judah realizes that he needs a wife for his oldest son, Ur, and so he finds Tamar, and Tamar becomes Ur's wife. And verse 7 tells us, and this is, so Tamar's first encounter here, relationship that we see her engaged in is with Ur, Judah's firstborn. Uh, verse 7, it says that he's wicked. And so obviously, the, the text doesn't go into a lot of details here, but we can, I think, make a reasonable assumption that this uh, relationship was a difficult one for Tamar. She's married to a wicked man. In fact, he's so wicked, it says, the Lord puts him to death in verse 7. Then verse 8, something kind of interesting. So there's Tamar, her first relationship is with Ur. Ur's wicked enough that, for, that God puts him to death. And then we see this, this next relationship that she has with Ur's brother. Verse 8, Judah says to Onan, the, the second son, something that seems kind of strange. He says, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. You say, now, now what in the world is going on there? And we've, we've talked about this before, but... In this culture, and this is described in Deuteronomy 25, whenever an unmarried brother had a brother who passed away, who was married, that unmarried brother would become the husband of his brother's widow, and the first child that was born from that relationship would kind of stand as as his brother's representative, and so he would receive the inheritance of his brother, he would kind of carry on his brother's name. And so a person had a responsibility in this culture to, to honor their, their brother in that way. An unmarried brother took in the widow of his deceased brother. In fact, Deuteronomy says this. It's, it's, an, it's, a, uh, it's a matter of great responsibility. It says, if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel and he will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. And then it says, the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him and if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife, and you can just kind of imagine the picture here, it's a, it's a culture in which shame is a big deal and so she's, she's doing this publicly in front of the, the leaders of the city. It says the brother's wife is going to go up in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she's going to say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who has his sandal pulled off. And you think your nickname is bad. Uh, that's really bad, right? <laughs> now, here's the sad thing. Here's the sad thing. Here's this, this woman who has been brought into this family. And her first husband is a wicked husband. And so, again, you can imagine the, the pain that being in a relationship with a wicked husband, a husband that's so wicked to be put to death, you can imagine the pain of that relationship. Now she enters into a, another marriage relationship, or she enters into this, this, other, this other relationship. But Onan, Onan is a particular t- type of wicked, right? He doesn't want the public shame of refusing to do his duty, but he's also a very selfish individual. He, he does the math. And he realizes, look, if I don't provide an offspring through Tamar, through my deceased brother's widow, if I don't provide an offspring, that's more inheritance for me. Right now, Onan realizes I'm in line for everything that that a firstborn would get. If I have a son through her, he becomes like my my nephew, becomes kind of the the person standing in line for my brother, then I I lose out. And so the, the text tells us that he... 
He uh, uses her physically, but not in such a way that she's able to conceive. He, he doesn't just say, no, I'm not going to do this. He's willing to use her physically, but not allow her to conceive. He has a special type of abusive to her. And God looks on this, and he puts him to death also, the text tells us. So now, here's this widow, Tamar, treated poorly by a wicked husband, treated shamefully by this second husband, And now Judah steps in. And Judah behaves in a reprehensible way as well. You know, a righteous person in the Pentateuch, over and over again you see a righteous person in the Pentateuch is the one who looks at a person in need, the the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the poor, the widow, the foreigner. A righteous person looks at those people in need and provides for them. In the book of Exodus God says to the people, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child if you do mistreat them. And they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. God says that if, if the poor cry out to him, he says, I will hear, for I am compassionate in the Pentateuch, Throughout Scripture, you see that God is a God who is compassionate, who cares for the impoverished, he cares for the foreigner, he cares for the widow, and the person who's righteous, who's in right relationship with God, is also a person who cares for the widow, for the fatherless, for the poor, for the foreigner. Judah looks at this widow, and instead of saying, I have a obligation, a a duty because I love God to provide and care for this widow, he makes a calculated decision to send her away. He says, go back to your father's house and whenever my other son is old enough, I'll give him to you or give you to him. But but, uh, he's he's too young right now. And the narrator tells us that that he has no intention of doing so. He's, He's afraid that this son will die as well. So here's this woman who is essentially abandoned. This, this woman who makes it into the genealogy of Jesus is a woman who is abandoned, abused, who's not cared for the way that God had called his people to care for the widow. And, and what she does next is, is certainly not something that's, that's commended in the text, but what, what she does next is something that's, that's done out of desperation. She It says that uh, in the course of time, verse 12, so some time passes, and uh, her father-in-law's wife dies. And it says, when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shares, he and his friend Hira, the Dulamite. And when T- Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. And so she, she fools her father-in-law. He thinks that she is a, a temple prostitute, and so she engages in this physical relationship with him. He doesn't know who, it's, who it is, she takes his signet and his cord to identify him so that she can receive payment later. And then verse 20 tells us that Judah goes later to, to find, he sends his friend to find her. He doesn't find her. And then uh, 
Judah in verse 23, they say we can't fight her. Judah says, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I, I sent this young goat, you didn't find her. Then three months go by. Three months go by. And Judah is told, this is in verse 24, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now, I just want to stop the story there and let's realize what's taking place in Tamar's life. Again, this is, with many of these situations, we're not commending the actions of, of every individual involved who, who we're focusing on, but, but just, just think about from the perspective of the narrative, the perspective of her life, what's taking place. She's a woman who has been abandoned by those who were instructed by God to care for her. Her first husband, her, her second husband, her father-in-law have all abandoned their duty and responsibility to her, despite what God has told them to do. In fact, her father-in-law, not only has he refused to provide for her, he has he also abused her physically, although he didn't know that it was her. And now, here, here's the irony, this, this father-in-law who was supposed to provide, who was supposed to be the source of provision for this woman, even though he was supposed to be the source of provision for this woman, he is now engaged in a, a physical relationship, even though he didn't know that it was her, and now he is prepared to put her to death for doing the exact thing that he is guilty of. The abandonment is, is profound here, right? The absolute, complete abandonment of providing for this woman that God had, had, had called him to do, uh, the, the abandonment is, is profound. Now, my guess is that no one here this morning would say, you know what, that sounds exactly like my situation this morning. That's, that's probably not you, okay? But, but I, I would be very surprised if there were not a significant number of people in here this morning who'd say, you know what, um, this morning I also am a person who feels abandoned. Maybe I, I feel abandoned this Christmas. I feel abandoned because of, of there are some relationships I have and these people have treated me this way and there were people that I was looking to for provision of, of security emotionally or security financially. There's some security that I was expecting from them spiritually and, and uh, th- this morning I don't have that. That I feel like a person who has been abandoned by the people who are supposed to be providing for me. I would be shocked if there were not a significant percentage of us this morning who would, who would, say, who would not say, that's, that's me. I was reading a, I didn't read the, the book, I read a summary of the book. It's called Left, and it's about a, a man, and his name is... Um, it's, it's Jonathan Edwards, but not the Jonathan Edwards. It's a, a newer Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan, I think it's Jonathan C. Edwards. But I was reading kind of a, a blurb about this book, and it was talking about how in this book left, he talks about how his father abandoned his family when he was seven years old, and he just kind of gives snapshots of different moments of his life and how, what it felt like not to have a father at that moment. So, you know, being a, a middle schooler and being at the baseball game and not having the money in the family to buy cleats for the baseball game and having to wear girls softball cleats or being a 
a freshman in college and meeting your father's new fiance and seeing the, the wedding ring on her hand and her telling you, hey, you just kind of need to get over some things. Just that, that feeling of absolute abandonment by a person who is supposed to be providing for you. Some of you have felt it, right? And perhaps, perhaps at Christmas when you, when you think about family in a special way, that the feeling of abandonment becomes more severe, becomes more profound, and the sense of loss becomes more profound because you think about all the things that you do not have, that you should have, that the relationships that you, you should have that you don't have because of someone's abandonment who is supposed to provide for you. Or you think about the, the financial things. You know, I should have the ability to give this to my friends or this to my children this Christmas, and I don't because I am a person who's been abandoned. Or I should have the, the type of family relationships that I see this family have, but I don't because I'm a person who's been abandoned. There's a sense of profound sorrow for many of us. Now, what hope does Tamar provide us? What is her inclusion in the genealogy of Jesus himself tell us? As Tamar's story goes on, we see that God is a gracious God. We see it on a micro level, and then we see it on a macro level as well. Just on a, mac, on a micro level, we see Judah confronted by his daughter-in-law, and she does it in a very wise way. She doesn't do it in front of everyone. She sends word to her father-in-law and says, Hey, uh, Judah, the man to whom these belong is, is the man by whom I'm pregnant, and and can you identify this? And Judah says, uh, yeah, I can. That is mine. And he says this in verse 26. She is more righteous than I. Judah, the, the one through whose tribe the Messiah is going to come, has to publicly acknowledge that this woman that he was about to burn to death is more righteous than he is. There is a, a public reckoning that uh, Tamar ex- experiences in, in terms of, of supporting her. We see that there's also, he, he uh, did not know her again. There, it seems like the, the abuse of her or the hands of these men in this family comes to, to stop. And then we also see the provision of, of these two children, one of the children being Perez, who becomes part of the line of Jesus himself. As we think about that, we say, okay, well, that's, that's telling us something about the, the, the redemption that this story tells us about on, on more of a, a macro level. Here, this, this woman who has been harmed by this family becomes part of bringing the redemption of this family. In other words, she not only provides the redemption through Jesus Christ, she provides for the redemption of the very people who harmed her. God, in his grace, works about redemption in the story of pain and the story of, of sorrow. She becomes part of the story to even redeem those who caused her pain. She becomes a part of the Christmas story. She's not just vindicated. She becomes part of the story of, of vindicating others who don't deserve it. How is God... If you're a person this morning who would say, man, I, I am part of the abandoned, how, how is God going to redeem that story for you? Here, here's our temptation. Here's, here's our non-gospel, non-redemptive way to think about our story. 
we first of all think about ourselves. Okay, we start with, with me, and, and we say, I, I am a person who deserves to be loved. That's, that's where our thinking begins. And then the next step of our non-gospel thoughts is, okay, I'm a, I'm a person who deserves to be loved, and the next step of our thoughts, our non-gospel thoughts is, and people aren't loving me the way that I should be loved and provided for. And maybe we think of even specific people. That, that, that friend over there does not love me the way that I, I wanted her to love me, and so I, I should be loved, and I'm not loved and provided by that person the way that I should be, by that, by that friend, by that family member, by that parent, by that spouse. And then the, the third step of our non-gospel thoughts is, okay, I should be loved, step one. Step two, I'm not loved by that person. Step three is, I, I don't have what I need. I am lacking. And then the fourth step of our non-gospel thoughts is, I, I'm, I'm angry about this. I, I'm bitter. And there's kind of a cycle. Because I'm bitter, I think more about how great I am and how I deserve to be loved. And how I'm not loved by this person. And then I think about all that I'm lacking again. And then it causes me to become angry and bitter. And it's, it's, just, it's a vicious cycle, right? How does, how does redemptive thinking help us as we think about Tamar's story here. Well, it may also begin with us thinking about ourselves, but we may think about ourselves more in this life. We say, you know what? I am a person who has wronged a holy God. I'm a a person who, yes, I've been wronged by others, but I have also wronged a holy God. And then the next step of my thought is, okay, well, let me think about who God is. And and God is a God who has... provided for me and not abandoned me. He has provided for me his son, Jesus Christ, the one who redeems. And then as I think about, okay, I have been provided, I think about myself, and yeah, I, I may have been wronged by others, but I, I've wronged a holy God, and yet God, that God is, has loved me even when I was his enemy. He's provided his son, Jesus Christ, for me. And then as I think about that, I, I think about this. I have every, every resource that I need in that Redeemer. There is nothing that I, I need that I do not have in him. And then the, the next step in my gospel thoughts is, okay, now I want to live an others-focused redemptive life life because there are other lonely people that need to hear the story of the Redeemer. As we think about Tamar's story here in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that she, even in her sorrow, is part of a story that brings about a Redeemer. And then as I think about my story, I say, okay, I, I'm here at this, this point, and right now the pain feels very profound, the abandonment feels very real, and what I need to tell myself are these gospel thoughts that, yes, people have wronged me, but I have also wronged a God, and it's a God, though, who continues to love me faithfully and provide for me, and now I have the joyful responsibility to pro- proclaim that redemption to others. Let me commend that to you this, this, this Christmas. To, to see yourself, to, to say, okay, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to set myself in a pattern. I'm going to acknowledge the wrong that others have done, perhaps. I need, I need to not be, I, I can't lie and say, you know what, everyone's treating me great. You know, I, I need to, some of us need to acknowledge there are some people that have profoundly, profoundly wronged us. But I want to think gospel thoughts about that. Gospel thoughts about loneliness and abandonment. Yes, I haven't been loved, but yes, God loves me. He provides his son for me. 
and I want to proclaim that redemption to others. Christmas is not joyful because a beautiful world welcomes her king. Christmas is joyful because a king, Jesus Christ, comes to a weary world and proclaims redemption. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the redemption we have through him, through faith in in your son Jesus. We pray that you would help us uh, to rightly recognize who we are in you, to take comfort in in the reality that you are a God who who takes the broken and and heals them. We pray that we would be faithful this this Christmas in the relationships you've given us, that we'd be, be faithful to be proclaiming your redemption to those we love. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.